Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Patrick. Thanks for joining us today, Patrick. Patrick and Tom worked on a bunch of shows together in Holy Cross, including Damn Yankees, where they both played Joe Boyd. Patrick also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Tom. We will be jumping into the drama romance film Broken Blossoms by D.W. Griffith, who is also known for Intolerance, Orphans of the Storm, Way Down East, and Birth of a Nation. Other big movies in 1919 included Blind Husbands, True Heart Susie, and Charlie Chaplin's Sunny Side. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about the plot of this movie and why you brought this to our attention today to discuss? Okay, so this movie is uh, it takes place in the Limehouse district of London, which was known as being a, a predominantly Chinese district in that area. And it follows a young man, um, Cheng Quan, I think is how we, we say his name, a Chinese man who emigrates there. And he meets Lucy, a young girl played by Lillian Gish, who is suffering from an abusive father, battling burrows. And after being beaten by her father, uh, Lillian Gish's character, Lucy, finds Chang Quan and he takes care of her, treats her. When battling burrows finds out about this blossoming romance, he grabs Lucy, he beats Lucy to death. Chang then kills battling burrows and then kills himself. I so I saw this movie I think in college. Um, I, I think we mentioned seeing it in class, but I honestly don't remember seeing it. I remember seeing Orphans of the Storm in a class. I don't remember seeing this in a class. I saw a lot of D.W. Griffith movies when I was like 22, 21, something like that. Um, and and I watched all the the full length ones, and I you know kind of wasn't really getting it. Years later, kind of watching them after turning 30 or whatnot, they, they had a much larger effect on me. And I, you know, find this movie to be very, very tender. The whole thing from the way the, the slides or the, the way the film is colored uh, to the use of music and to kind of the, the way the, the story unfolds. It's a very small, very tender and very kind of lyric film. And I now love it even though when i first saw it i didn't you know really it, it didn't really capture me in any way how about you kj what do you think i knew nothing about broken blossoms before watching it for this podcast um i did enjoy the movie but it is from 1919 which comes with its own set of problems um if the racism and the loose handling of different cultures can be ignored then I can absolutely appreciate the shots, the lighting, the tone, the atmosphere, um, if not the representation of the peoples in the movie. So I did enjoy it, but I, you know, listeners that want to go watch this, just heads up, it is, it's an older movie with older ideas. How about you, Nick? Yeah, so I have a, a limited history with uh, silent films. I did think of the ones I've seen, which really 
goes back to one of the ones we saw earlier in our show, um, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, that this one was also well done. I, I did notice, even though it was around the same time period, I, I thought it was a little crisper, as uh, KJ was talking about with some of the shots, the lighting, the tone. And I actually was pretty impressed how they were able to depict a lot of emotions within this story. Uh, even when you're not in the intertitles, you understand how these people are feeling. And, and I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit more. I don't want to get into any of the potential questions. It was quite a sad tale, but I thought it was well done. KJ is absolutely right. You have to put aside and understand the time frame in which this movie was created. And they also, you have to understand that most of those influences are coming from the person in this movie who is a bad character. He's the one who's the biggest offender of a lot of those uh, situations. But I, I do think it was a well-made movie and the story itself was uh, quite enjoyable, but yes, very sad. Patrick, what were your thoughts on this film? Um, so yeah, like, like Tom, Tom and I went to college together. So we, I, I know for a fact that yes, we were assigned this movie in, in a class. Like I'm a hundred percent positive that we were. However, I'm also a hundred percent positive. I didn't watch it when we were assigned it for that class. So maybe that's why we don't remember it because we probably didn't actually watch it. Uh, yeah, we might not have yeah, watched I'm, the but movie. I'm yeah. positive we were assigned it because I remember sitting with some other friends from that class and making making a lot of jokes about the film because, it, as you point out, it to a to a modern audience, I mean, it is radically radically tone deaf. However, it, you know, it, you, as you say, like you kind of have to understand the context in which it's coming out, and especially for D.W. Griffith, I think, you know, his history with some other films that he's had, in particular Birth of a Nation, he's he's kind of carried a lot of accusations of racism in large part because of that film. And he spends part of his time, and I think this follows that trend of trying to almost undo his claims that he's racist. And in some ways, he just kind of furthers them. But he's he's kind of trying to sort of, he's using shorthand, essentially, to your point. Like, he's sort of just kind of shortchanging some of these cultures and using contemporary shorthand. So it's like, he can just say that this is an Asian character, and this is an, you know, a poor British character who's angry, and this is a, you know, white maiden woman, you know, so he can use shorthand. And that's just, I think, a strategy that's used frequently by a lot of art, literature, film of that time period. So he's in some ways handicapped just by the, the language and visual and everything that, that his culture would be using anyway. But to your point, it, it is certainly comes across as tone deaf in a modern audience. Um, but even then, I think Tom, I think you're, you've got a good idea there too, which is almost, especially compared to some other pieces, it's almost like a, it's a little kind of curio piece. Like it's a little, it's not epic. It's not huge. It's very small. Most of it's taking place in small indoor locations. It's a very limited character set. It's about relationships among a very small group of characters. And so for that reason, I do think it, as a, as a piece, it kind of shines out um, because of that, despite the difficulties that it's, it's, it's going to have, like there's just no getting around it. But despite that fact, I think as a, as a piece if you kind of understand the language that he's trying to use, it, it is quite effective. Okay. Uh, now, Patrick, we ask each one of our guests a, a critical question at the beginning of these episodes. What do you recommend to be the ideal snack to enjoy while watching Broken Blossoms? 
so I I think you need you need two things because you've got you've got two totally different worlds you have to kind of bring together to appreciate this film. So I thought if you if you've ever been to uh, you can get these you can get these beers outside of New York City, but if you've ever been to McSorley's Tavern in um, in New York City, that is like. Like that's what you imagine battling Burroughs' life to be. Like that is that's where he's going and getting his drinks. That's where you know, like that's the that's the food that he eats is, is what you're going to get at McSorley's Tavern. So like, the, I, I think you you have to get like a McSorley's ale. Like you need to have one of those just so you can appreciate like the 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 sort of that that lifestyle. And I think if you're gonna also go and say, well, you you've also got sort of the softer side of life, especially coming in from. Uh, you know, the other characters and sort of the Asian influence. So I would say you need to get a vegetable lo mein. It has to be vegetable lo mein. I don't think you can get like a pork lo mein or something else because I think you, you have to appreciate probably the, the sort of the softer side. My guess is our, our Cheng Huan is a vegetarian. So I'm going to say that you need to have a vegetable lo mein and a McSorley's ale. And then, then you can appreciate the, the both, both parts of this film. Definitely an interesting pairing. And uh, the one thing that's great about McSorley's is they serve in very small glasses, but then you just have a lot of glasses in front of you at the end of it. It's great. Maybe we'll reach out to McSorley's and see if they'll do a viewing of Broken Blossoms with a special menu item. Maybe they can just pay us. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we gave gave them a plug. Not that they need it. (laughs) It's time for Movie Quiz. First, we'll start with round one. In round one, each question is worth one point. And I will let Pat pick from our categories. Our categories are Limehouse Style, Melodrama, and Reasons. So Pat, what would you like? Let's start with Melodrama, how about that? It's time for question one. Melodrama comes from the French sensationalist dramas and English music hall ballads that involve high tense emotions, obvious morality, and grand demonstrations. Why and how do you think this movie uses melodrama or one or more of its tenants using a specific example from the picture? Locked in. Locked in. All right, locked in. I may have had to look up melodrama. I should have looked up melodrama. <laughs> All right, we'll start. Pat, what is your answer? So I will start with the the, the example I would give of, of a melodramatic scene, I think, is when they're contrasting the, they have the boxing scene going on where Battling Burroughs is, is having his big prize fight. And they're contrasting that with the uh, scene sort of in the upstairs room above the shop where Lucy is with Cheng Huan and, you know, they're, they're having this sort of, um, very tender moment but but what i think is going on is is you know i I think you're you're meant to make a pretty clear contrast between the fact of okay there's this big brawl going on you know the sort of action sequence thing being combined with this moment of you know it's very clear that cheng huan is sort of is is tempted to basically make their relationship physical with lucy and so there's, you know, two different battles going on, one in his mind and one sort of being contrasted with this big um, sort of, you know, spectacle fight going on at the same time. So to me, it's just very, and, you know, then there's a big title card that comes up and says, you know, but his, his you know, love remains pure or something like that. And he doesn't, he doesn't touch her, he leaves her alone. So it's very, it's a very clear sort of, um, 
to your point, moral message that this is a, this is not meant to be a physical relationship. This is entirely meant to be a sort of spiritual, emotional, supportive relationship between the two of them. And he sort of overcomes his temptation, you know, in the same way that a boxer overcomes his opponent. So it's, it's this, it's sort of, a, it's a dramatic big scene and you got big music going on with it. It's, it's melodramatic like it is, but it has a very, very clear sort of moral point at the end of it, which I think fits with your definition, Tom. But I think that it's sort of, well, why do they use it? Um, in part, it might be because of potentially the, 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 the sort of controversial nature of what he was dealing with at the time, you know, and as I think we've said, I don't remember who said it specifically, but it's like an interracial relationship at this time period would have been almost unheard of and potentially even illegal depending on where you are. So the fact that he's dealing with a very controversial topic, he kind of needs to hit it with a hammer to make it very clear that this is, this is not what people would be potentially offended by although he's clearly trying to nudge it in that direction to say that actually it's, it's the, you know, you, you need to be um, more tolerant again, I think is part of his point here, but he is kind of, I think, hitting it with a hammer, very emotionally charged answer here and a very emotionally charged scene in order to get that point across of why he's doing it. So I think that's part of the reason why he's using melodrama in that particular circumstance. So I may not understand what melodrama is, but here's my answer. So Pat had, talked about um Sheng Huan staying pure I, there was a scene that foreshadowed that when he's coming over from China he's on the boat I'm pretty sure and he's down with a group of people who aren't as pure as he is and he resists temptation with the women um and that's the scene I'm going with this isn't my answer, but to KJ's point on that too, I believe he refers to her as white blossom, which is pure. So going along with that pure line. But to my answer, I think when we talk about things that are sensationalized for the audience to kind of exaggerate for emotion, it really comes around the main character, one of the main characters, which is battling Burroughs, to show how wicked and evil this person is. There's really two scenes, uh, so I don't know if that'll be within the parameters of the question, but it has to do with when you see he's a, a, a drunkard who takes pleasure out of beating his daughter, okay? And in one of the earlier scenes, she's serving him, she's trying to please him, but there's a scene where he literally is saying, if you don't do this, oh, I know what it was. She came back still earlier than he demanded for his tea. Okay, but he was in a bad mood and he was drunk. So he still said, I'm going to whip you. I'm going to, and she's pleading. When he said, I'm going to whip you, I thought he just, that was like, like synonymous for, I'm going to beat you up. He literally had a whip under his bed that he took out and then start, proceeded to whip her with it. And then later, this is a, the next sequence in the same room where he's very irate with her. And he literally takes that same whip. This time he's taking the handle and he's beating her literally to death, okay, with the handle of the whip. I mean, that was really over the top to show you, to really strike emotion with the audience about how evil it is that this person could exist and how good of a person she was. And she still was being subjected to all of this abuse and honestly died from it. So I thought that was a really powerful uh, tool within this movie to really show how horrible the lead antagonist was in this movie. 
All right. Thank you, gentlemen. And I think the point is going to go to Pat. Congratulations, Pat. What I liked about the, the answer was it um, took the kind of the melodramatic convention, the kind of um, uh, over-the-top moralizing or over-the-top sensationalism and combined it with the moralizing and grounded it in D.W. Griffith's uh, kind of intercutting, which he became, you know, very, very famous for. And the, the kind of the moral or moralizing aspect of of this film was very interesting to me, especially relative to kind of its time period. Because um, if you know, like 1919, th this movie is in part kind of a response to the yellow peril type situation, it, both in England and in America. And this movie's like, it, it feels English, but it also is clearly like an American picture for this reason, um, is that you had a large Asian population coming over and there was this fear that they were uh, the, the Asian immigrants were going to sort of degrade the morals of the women who were both Asian women and American women. Um, and there was a, a lot of kind of art that came out at this time. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille had a movie, I think in 1915, that was kind of about the rapacious Asian threat. Um, and the the kind of moral idea of uh, of a higher love or a loftier thing vis-a-vis -vis the kind of brutality of the the anglo-saxton is is in part a kind of a corrective move i think on the part of griffith to the belief that uh, a lot of people had regarding this kind of asian peril that that these people were these kind of rapacious uh individuals i was gonna say i i think it it's you know, Europe, I mean, America in particular, obviously has more of an immigrant culture anyway, you know, history anyway, but, you know, England certainly does to a certain extent too. So your point is that, yeah, it, there's always sort of, you know, going back for many, many generations, there's sort of always this kind of terror that like, it, as people come in, that it's somehow going to change things and then things are going to start degrading, whether you go back to, you know, the Irish in the 19th century, you have, you know, large groups of Eastern Europeans coming in the late 19th century, you have large groups of, you know, Asians coming in in the early 20th century, you know, it, and into today, I mean, it's a long serving trend that goes on for very long periods of time in U.S. history. So, yeah, I think that this movie is certainly an attempt to basically go and say, and, and to that point, it's, it's, again, I think it's why it's using melodrama to some extent, and, and it does have to, it's, it's using these sort of cultural shorthands as a means to go do that in, in a way that, yeah, to a modern audience, it still comes across as very sort of naive at best um but it, it's to your point yeah i think there there is at least an attempt by dw griffith to try to go and to offer a counter to that certainly i mean cheng huang is the hero of the story right so the the fact that he used not his own culture as the hero i feel like is probably pretty progressive for 1919 and and my guess is that he's probably also trying to make a case that in some ways, especially since, you know, the, the irony is that Cheng Huan is obviously is supposed to be the, you know, the, the peace loving, the one who's supposed to, um, you know, that he's, he wants to bring his message of peace to the Anglo-Saxons. And yet he's the one who shoots the guy like seven times. At the end of the movie, he's probably like, he is brutally violent at the end of this movie. And so I think it's also probably trying to make a case that, actually we that the you know the west might be the corrupting influence here not the other way around that that the you know this guy ends up worse off at the end of far worse off at the end of the movie than basically any of the other characters did um compared to where he started and where he ends up he's the one who actually has to undergo 
the, the worst transformation for the fact. So um, I think that's also something that they're, they're, it's trying to make clear is that it's actually the, the, the bad influence is going the other way in this instance. That's definitely a, an interesting take. I did not think about that, Patrick, when I first watched it, but that I think that does resonate and makes a lot of sense. Uh, one of the things that I, I'm sure would come up in the episode sometime, but talking about things that were not progressive, uh, what I found interesting, again, Cheng Huan is the protagonist or one of the leads here, one of the more innocent, as KJ was saying. But interestingly enough, Cheng Huan is played not by a Chinese person or an Asian person at all. It actually is uh, an actor by the name of Richard Barthelmes. So I, I thought it was interesting that back in the day there, they would just they wouldn't really care about that. And I, I, I know nowadays that would definitely be uh, an, an Asian lead, but I just, I, it jumped out at me the whole movie. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, avoid realizing that that person actually was not Asian. Yeah, that was pretty conventional. You would never have minority people on screen. I mean, Birth of a Nation, um, any person with, you know, quote unquote lines, it's a silent movie. Uh, uh, was a, a white person in blackface. And that's kind of the same here. You, you could have minority kind of extras, but you couldn't just have that on screen. That, that was not. They did even in this movie. There were uh, the extras or the non-main roles. But I, I do know that was just of the times. But talking about looking at a movie from today, back in 1919, it, it did jump out at me. There was also another um, character... Evil Eye, which is one of the higher title, uh, titled characters in this movie, and though he really didn't have much to do with it, but that was also by uh, Edward Peel Sr. So those were the two uh, Asian characters, or, or actually Chinese characters for this movie that were not played by any kind of uh, Asians. All right, shall we jump into question two? Okay, and I'll let KJ pick this time. So we have... Limehouse style and reasons. I'll go with reasons. It's time for question two. Why does Chang Quan say he wants to come to England? Locked in. Yeah, locked in. Locked in? All right, since KJ sounded most confused, let's start with him. What do you have? <laughs> I don't remember, maybe at all. But was it to spread the peace and harmony of China or his religion in England? That, that's what I'm going with. Just to elaborate on what KJ was saying, I believe it was in the right theme, but I think specifically, if I recall, he was Buddhist, and I believe he wanted to share that with the Western world. It's again, peace and harmony, but I think it was his Buddhist background that he wanted to share. Yeah, same similar answer. Yeah, I think he specifically says Buddhism. He wants to share the peace, the message of peace of Buddhism with specifically Anglo-Saxon, is what he says. Uh, but yeah, he wants to spread his message of the peace of Buddhism with Anglo of to the Anglo-Saxons. All right, and I think the point goes to everyone because you all basically said the same thing. <laughs> um, what it, the intertitle reads: The Yellow Man holds a great dream to take the glorious message of peace to the barbarous Anglo-Saxons, sons of turmoil and strife. <laughs> and yeah, uh, um, you know, I didn't thought I'd put a kind of easy fact question in there, but this kind of picks up on something you were saying before, Pat, about the the way influence works in the other direction. 
that it doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't end up influencing basically anyone um, that it, it becomes, he becomes the kind of the corrupted one. And I think that starts even earlier than the, the final scene or the, the climax when he shoots battling Burroughs like 87 times in, in four seconds. Uh, um, when we see him over in, in the Limehouse area, there's a, a kind of montage of cuts of the sort of the underbelly um, with, you know, a lot of people kind of gambling. There's a, sort of a depiction of what we can imagine are loose women. Um, and I'm kind of interested in that, in the way the Limehouse is shown as an influence on, on this character. Yeah, I mean, I think specifically there's also, an, there's, you know, again, I'm guessing at the times they couldn't specifically say it, but there's also a strong implication that he's basically addicted to opium at this point. Um, you know, I think there's like, there's, there's shots of him smoking, you know, from a very long pipe. There's shot, you know, I think there's, there's a, I can't remember the exact title card, but it's, it's quite kind of, it's like, he goes back to the shop with like, with a whiff of like the corrupt breath on uh, like wind on his breath. It's like, they, you know, it's some like reference where it's like, okay, you know, clearly the same, okay, the guy's, the guy's smoking something. Um, and, you know, probably I'm thinking the implication is opium. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, he's, he's already kind of trying to sort of forget himself amongst this sort of very seedy, not particularly great neighborhood. So last question for everyone is Limehouse style. It's time for question three. In order to capture the feel of the Limehouse district of London, Griffith often used stylized sets and miniatures drawn from landscape artists, such as Charles Hamy. How would you describe the style, that is the look and texture, of this film and justify your description? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Nick, let's start with you. When I think about the style of this film, especially the actually the exterior as well as interior shots and in, in many uh respects gritty and poor that's kind of the the feeling i get when i watch this so talking about an internal shot when you're at a battling burrows place it is the stereotypical i i i have tough times and i'm poor they have one table one chair there's a bed in the background a stove, like very bare bones. You, you can almost feel like the, the dust and the dirt on things. And then there's another scene where they go into his, uh, his bedroom, which I actually thought it was at for a while. I thought that was a one room place. And his room also has one small table, one chair and a bed, like very minimalist. And it's just a dark and dirty. Even when they're going through on an exterior shot, even when they're going through the streets, you can see like the, the dirt and the fog and the almost like soot and smoke in the air uh, when they're traveling from Cheng Huan's shop to where Lucy lives. That happens a few times uh, from a few different people. And that's what I would say. I just, the, the, the gritty, dirty, poor vibe going on. So what I was actually going to say is like, as far as like a style goes, I don't know. I, I had to look up his name because I couldn't remember his name. It's, it's Joseph Cornell. Um, and he's this artist who did like 
found, he did like a lot of like mixed media kind of found media things. And he used to make these like almost like shoebox style things. And he would make, like, you know, kind of collect various objects in them. And he had this sort of, um, you know, that, that was sort of his like kind of experimentalist art creations. And in some ways it, it reminds me of that. Like it's sort of, it does have this, I think I think I like your idea of like, yeah, it's, it's sort of like all these interior scenes are, they seem, they're very carefully placed with like specific objects meant to, you know, sort of depict, you know, and, and sort of connote a specific thing. And so it's like, you know, the shop has is specifically sort of organized with all this kind of clutter around it. And like the upstairs room is specifically organized with like very specific objects meant to communicate a specific thing about any specific character. So it's sort of, it has almost all the interior scenes almost have this kind of collected hodgepodge feel to them. Um, and sort of this, not, not quite found art, but it sort of has this sort of like, uh, intentional clutter almost feel to it like everywhere you kind of go there's always this kind of feeling that everything is is sort of mismatched and cluttered and things are just thrown around but it feels intentional in some way and I think it, it sort of helps to to get across some of that the the sort of just the the message of the film or just sort of the the environment that he's trying to communicate so before I answer I just want to go back Nick was describing uh, battling Burroughs uh, dwelling and uh, Tom, you had lived in Brooklyn for a while. And in my head, New York City is so expensive. So whenever I pictured your apartment in Brooklyn, it was very similar to Battling Burroughs' little house, um, except there was a bare light bulb hanging right in the middle of the room. And that was the only lighting source. <laughs> yeah, I, I lived... I lived in like the upper, it, it, like when I first moved to the city, I lived in like a studio apartment. It was like 300 square feet. Like, and it was literally like a bed, like, like the kitchen was like right next to it. And there was like a little hallway to the bathroom. And I remember one of my brothers being like, do you want to borrow? Like, I have a table if you want it. I'm like, it, it wouldn't fit in my apartment. He's like, it's really small. Like, it's fine. I'm like, I, literally there is no room. Like there is nothing left in this apartment that will fit here. No room at the end. <laughs> yeah, like there is nothing. There is no space for any additional furniture or anything. Like that is it. Like this is this is this is New York. <laughs> but uh for my actual answer, I, I would describe this movie as Blade Runner nineteen nineteen. I I think there's a lot of similarities in the way it looks and felt as as Blade Runner. Um that would be an easy way to describe it. Okay, how was it like Blade Runner, if Blade Runner was in 1919? Um, it felt quite foggy. Um, as Patrick was saying, it felt quite placed. So every object there either represented something or, or was supposed to be on set. Uh, very similar to Blade Runner, how it's filled with stuff to show how the future that Ridley Scott was trying to show. It's also very dark um, and very contained, but it felt like if you looked around the corner, you would see a whole another part of this world, but that wasn't important to the movie. So I think the points are going to go to Nick and Pat. Um, no offense, KJ, but I, I don't see that at all with the Blade Runner thing. I was going to say, if you mentioned um, the fact that they're both representing Asian districts, I remember Blade Runner was was a predominantly Asian I area. Think, was that more Japanese influence? Was that more Japanese? Oh, influence? yeah. I guess it was Japanese. But still, okay. Asian, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, it's yeah. pretty yeah, Asian. Asian mm. cultures in general. Yeah. But um, yeah. Other than that, I didn't. I don't really, really see the Blade Runner <laughs> influence. Um, but I, I think what I, I liked a lot about you know what you were saying, Nick. The the kind of the interiors uh, and and the smokiness. Um, and there is a kind of impressionistic aspect to this and if you know Griffith's other films I don't know if anybody's I know I think Pat you've seen 
the other ones because i've we're... seen some of the other ones yeah okay, i've seen yeah, yeah. the other ones over the years but yeah <laughs> yeah I, we were in class we were supposed to watch the other ones um, yes we did the other ones i did watch it's just this one it's just this one that i'm 100 certain i didn't watch uh, but but griffith's other movies are like big spectacles that's how he became famous he was you know like oh, very very large um, movies. I mean, at one point he actually went to the Battle of the Somme in, in World War One and filmed it, and it was too boring, so he restaged it in order to to kind of sell. Um, so this movie's a, a big departure from that because it's it's this internal, this interior film, and also very impressionistic. Um, and I, you know, I like how you know uh, you guys, Nick and Pat, kind of picked up on that a lot because I felt the same way, especially about this idea of like. Um, intentional clutter <laughs> the the room is sort of a representation of what that what you know like the brute anglo-saxton's room is supposed to look like <laughs> there's nothing really particularly individualistic about this like you think like maybe boxing gloves or something would be hanging up um but it's just like this type of man lives here <laughs> this other type of man lives here um <laughs> <laughs> this one's a drunkard. This yeah. one's addicted to opium. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah, there is. There's no boxing gloves. There's no indication of what he is. Yeah. Well, they, they may have been in that closet that she hid in that he tried to chop down. But we see the inside of the closet. There's nothing in there. Because he just got back from his boxing match. <laughs> um, <he's still> <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the other thing too with with Pat, with your answer, the kind of the the, the Cornell. Um, whatever they call the, the box of yeah i think they're di i think they are dioramas di dioramas yeah i think that's is what he called them yeah he actually griffith actually filmed dioramas some of this is that like a lot of the the um the the exterior shots of either london or of whatever part of china that our, our character comes from is actually it's a model with like a a toy boat being moved across the screen in order to kind of to, to set that kind of tone or that that intimacy which i don't think griffith does again or did before uh, and you know i didn't notice it until it was pointed out to me i was reading about this movie and you know how he was relying on this artist charles hemi um how he's influenced by him and they made these little models and he would film the model as an exterior shot and I thought that uh, that really did help set the tone. I didn't catch that at all, but maybe that's just because I thought that's how silent films look like because of the filming technology back there. But now that I know that, that's pretty cool. Well, that concludes round one. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Perfectly Placed is a service where we perfectly place instructions, items, and other things you need to get you through your day. But not for me. Let's hear from one of our customers. I'm Gary, and I'm being paid to promote Perfectly Placed. Well, shoot, we've all been there, sitting in the can, feeling much better after dropping what we're going to leave behind. We look over, and instead of seeing the white fluffy paper of the gods, we see the brown cardboard that shows us it's the end of the roll. It's my fault. I meant to replace the roll, and this is not the first time this has happened, and it is not the last time. At first... I thought, oh well, I'll just have to. But then I saw it. Folded neatly and nicely. Within arm's reach was the perfect number of squares needed for this exact situation. You're a lifesaver, Perfectly Placed. You've really helped to clean up my life. Perfectly Placed. We get around to reminding you what you'll get around to. 
And we're back. Tom, take it away. All right. So far, we have Pat leading with three points, Nick right behind him with two, and KJ trailing with one. In our next round, we have each question worth two points. And there's a little wrinkle in this round that we haven't done before. You are, if you'd like, able to substitute a question that I ask for a more straightforward fact question. However, once you substitute it, you can't go back. Pat, I will let you pick the categories. They are quotes and paraphrases, James A.G. quotes and paraphrases, Lillian Gish, quotes and paraphrases, Richard Sheckel. Let's go with Lillian Gish to start. It's time for question four. Gish reports Griffith's instructions to her that one of her characters understood to represent, quote, the essence of all girlhood, not just one girl, and that Gish attempted to embody, quote, the essence of virginity, end quote. Interpret this quote through the performances of the film, using at least one scene as an example. I'm terrified of the fact-based question, so I... Locked in. I'll lock it in. No, no, unlocked, unlocked. Give me the fact, give me the fact, give me the fact, unlocked. Oh, okay, I was like, I was like somebody needs to do the fact question because I want to at least hear the fact question. So if KJ will do it, then I'll, I'll lock in, I'll lock in. I'm not going to say the fact question until everybody's locked in. Okay, I'm, I'm locked in then. I think that just increased my odds because now do I have a 50-50 or am I also competing against KJ's fact? Are you competing against Pat, though? Pat, you're locked yeah. in for the quote, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're both locked so, in so, for the quote. So it's just between mm -hmm. you and me now. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, okay. but KJ okay. can just get it wrong. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Got well, it. Got okay. KJ will probably get it wrong. <laughs> All right. So I'll introduce the, the fact question now. KJ, what is the only diegetic sound we encounter in this movie? You are not allowed to look up diegetic. <laughs> Locked in. You're the only one. I still gotta lock in. <laughs> Should I answer? Are we doing the subjective one first? Let's do the the fact question first, because it's funnier. Yeah, it is. Um, so the only diegetic sound that we hear during the movie. All right. So diegetic might mean uh, hearing somebody eat. <laughs> it might. And if that's the case, it's a trick question because it was a silent movie. So we don't hear a diegetic sound in the movie. Okay, that is incorrect. <laughs> it's a great answer. <laughs> a diegetic sound is a sound that occurs within the world of the film, as opposed to, let's say, a soundtrack. There is one sound we hear. We hear it three times. Um, it's the bell, the ringing bell. of the bell mm -hmm. in, in Asia. Mm -hmm. Name the dietetic song. <laughs> <laughs> All so right. right. To be afraid of the fact-based question, I think. <laughs> Thank you, KJ. That was, that was very feet. entertaining. Uh, um, <laughs> so now, in terms of the quote question, let's start with Nick. What do you have? I have to gain my composure. Give me a second. <laughs> that was really funny. Give me a okay. What was the question again? So this is Gish's quote. She, okay. quote, was told to represent the essence of girlhood, not just one girl, and that she attempted to embody, quote, the essence of virginity. 
Okay, got it, got it, got it. Okay, so the scene in which she was beaten and Cheng Huan had taken her back to his store, uh, brought her up to second level, uh, gave her a, a, a nice dress and some um, jewelry and had her lying there to recover. He goes through a whole conversation with her and explains uh, that she is a white blossom. So that is the, the, the perfect symbol for everything that she represents, how she lives her life and uh, who she is. And that's the perfect label for the lifestyle that she wishes to live and that he can see that essence through her as she lives her days. She doesn't, he doesn't, sorry, she doesn't realize that he kind of is an admirer from a distance even before that event. And that's his true feelings about what she portrays in a very dark and dreary neighborhood. She is the white blossom. Okay, so it's that scene where she's kind of sitting outside his shop and then she crosses the street and he follows? Uh, I believe he refers, when he actually says the white blossom is when she's upstairs, and correct me if I'm wrong, and she's lying there and he's explaining to her to recover. I believe that's where he says the actual white blossom line. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Pat, what do you have? So I wanted to mention the scene where she's, um, it's after I think Battling Burrows is left and he said like, I want my tea by five o'clock or whatever in this thing. And so she goes and she, there's a stone on the door, by the door that she's like hidden there and she kind of pulls that up. And underneath it, there's like a silk ribbon and then there's like a piece of tin foil. And so the thing, and then so she takes the tin foil, so she puts the ribbon in her hair um, and then she takes the tin foil and tries to trade it for a flower, um, which they won't take. This is not enough tin foil for her to get a flower. So the reason I wanted to kind of mention that song is to me that's it almost has there's a, there's a few things that sort of come out of that is as you said like it's supposed to be this kind of universality of like of womanhood and childhood and this kind of thing and virginity and sort of just simplicity, and and I like the idea for a number of reasons like. It's incredible, you know. I think this is something a lot of children have. Like, it's incredibly childlike to have like this little hiding place for like little knickknacks and this kind of stuff that you know that a, that that a child might go put in there. And I believe with the ribbon, there's some sort of I can't remember exactly. There's a note in there, and I don't remember exactly what it says, but it's just something along the lines of like, it's not much, but here's you know here's something for you. And it, it always struck me, especially this kind of ribbon, this kind of um, silk ribbon, and almost has this kind of like dowry wedding feel kind of thing of like something she's being given as like her her only possession and so and then the fact that she also has this like tinfoil that she thinks she can go trade for flour it also has this like very childlike aspect of like you know a, a child going into a store and trying to buy basically something for nothing um and so to my mind it, it did have this very sort of universal feel of this of this little girl dressing up the best that she can in sort of this very you know, pure way and trying just in a very pure way to go and and trade a knickknack for a flower and sort of carry this, you know, again, to your point, I think the flower certainly does carry the symbolism of, of her um, sort of purity. And so the fact that she's just trying to go and buy a simple flower with this, with this sort of piece of trash, essentially. So it sort of carries to me this sort of, it, it's a very, it sort of carries that notion of just like, she's extremely simple. She's basically like a child. She's just trying to, you know, dress herself up as best as she can to get, you know, just even the most simple kind of things of beauty. And I think it carries that through, um, 
in the in the in the sense of what you're trying to say that if, if gish is trying to kind of embody sort of purity and childhood and just simplicity and sort of virginity and this kind of thing to me that that scene carries a lot of that quality with it in in sort of what she's supposed to represent yeah and the, the letter was it, it seems like to be from a mother but that's it what does i assume. say this yeah, is that's what i assume yeah but it, it does say this is a four-year yeah, wedding and i think yeah that's like, what i, was like, I think it even says it in there yeah day. and that's what i think i was like it, it almost mm -hmm. does have this sort of dowry feel to it that this is this is for your mm -hmm. this is a, a pure thing for you to keep with you all right, great. And I think the points are going to Pat. Um, the reason being, uh, no points for KJ, just to, to remind you, KJ. Um, the, the reason being that I, I think Pat's answer focused on actions that the that Lillian Gish's character was taking, as opposed to responses to. Um, I, I think both of those are important in kind of structuring the essence of someone, um, you know, how, how everybody in the cast is supposed to respond to her slash how she acts. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's interesting that you picked up on this. And I did want to talk about this is the kind of girlhood of this person. Um, I think in the source material, the short story by Thomas Burke, which this is based on, I think she's 14 years old. And Lillian Gish here is 26, 27, something like that. Um, but it, from what I can see in the movie and from, you know, kind of interviews with, with Gish when she's talking about this, um, she was trying to play the character as kind of the embodiment of girlhood, of like youngness. So she's always kind of bent over and kind of looking up and things like that. Um, and, you know, as, you know, Pat and I have both performed on stage before, um, it, it seems odd to think of having to approach a performance by being told you have to play the essence of girlhood <laughs> or the essence of anything like you you have to be the essence of masculinity or brutality or you know sophistication like it's, the, it's like, like the play that. in the seagull it's like that play at the in the beginning of the seagull that's all it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and in the opening of the seagull one of the characters writes a play that's like an kind of an abstract and kind of stupid absurd play that you know no one can really perform well um but yeah i was thinking about how how performance is done in this so, you know especially lillian gish but really anyone people want to pick up on you know what about the performance and what about the kind of style of performance was effective or grabbed your attention I just want to say I thought she was excellent in this movie and there was one specific element that she would do throughout the film that I thought was catchy and 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 unique and I really enjoyed it. Whenever he tells his daughter to put a smile on her face, she gets her two fingers uh, next to her lips and literally pulls them up into a smile. It's the most forced for smile that you can do and she does it a few times and I think she does it at the end almost for herself, but that was a very interesting thing. When I talked about in my intro about how I thought it, it, for a silent film, I was amazed how much it portrayed emotions. Most, if not all, I'd say a majority of those emotions are specifically from her performance, that she really portrays a lot through her, um, of her emotions through just her different facial expressions and tone and, and presentation on the screen. So I, I thought she did uh, a tremendous job. Yeah, Tom, maybe you know this. I'm actually, I actually am curious, because that is like, you know, I know that the smile thing is like sort of, you know, <laughs> the, um, 
is, is that something she did or is that like is, is there any like anybody ever talk about that in any of the other stuff you've read like is that something she did or is that something griffith told her to do or is that in the script or like where did that come from I don't, I don't know. I know with the, I, I honestly didn't get that from the, I know the closet scene yeah. was something she came up with on her own. And, you know, a lot of times Griffith would go through, if I've actually seen tapes of Griffith teaching actors and he goes through every single motion he wants them to do. Um, and so I think most actors would just kind of follow it. And so I think the, the smile thing, which for, you know, our audience that doesn't know, Lillian Gish is so sad, Lucy is so sad, that in order to smile, she has to force the smile on her face using her, her middle finger and index finger. But for most of the time, Griffith, that's how Griffith dealt with actors. It was like, you do this exactly. Um, when she did the closet scene, and for our audience who hasn't seen this, um, when Lillian Gish's character, Lucy, is beaten to death, she first hides in a closet. And when she's in the closet, she does like a 360. She turns, um, she turns in a full circle in kind of desperation. Uh, and this scene is is very, very famous. I mean, it's it's a subtopic on Wikipedia about the movie. That's how famous it is. Uh, that was something she came up with on her own. Um, and uh, apparently it was so kind of surprising to Griffith that he brought in someone else to watch her when they did when they shot it again for the second take. And apparently it was so effective, the man lost his breakfast while watching. Um, <laughs> So I, I think with uh, with Lillian Gish, um, there was a lot more uh, liberality in terms of what she was allowed to do and how much he kind of um, uh, put the pins in, so to speak, with their performance. I think with other people, he uh, he was a little more firm. Um, but this doesn't really quite answer your question because honestly, yeah. I, no, I, I was just know. curious because I was I was curious since <laughs> yeah. you brought it up. I was like, I actually never really thought about that. Is that something she did or where did it come from? I was just curious. About it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't. I didn't catch that. I just know some, some stuff was stuff she had improv. Um, so what I really, really liked about the diegetic sounds was how seamlessly they just faded right into the score. I mean, you see the bells, you hear the bells, but it, it was a really a nice um, moment there in the movie. I agree with KJ uh, in a non-facetious way, because when I watched it, I again, I have a limited uh, viewing of different silent films, they actually timed it up. So I didn't know if it was like coincidence at first, but they did it, as you mentioned, Tom, three times. I'm like, oh no, that's that's a stylistic effect that they're going for. So I, that regardless of the definition of diegetic, uh, I that jumped out of me when I was watching the film. But um, the, the, the bell ringing also frames the movie, right? I, I mean, it, it starts with the the bells before he leaves, and then um, it comes in sometime in the middle when he's, he's in the Limehouse district. And at the end, that's the last shot we get is, is the bells kind of ringing. Uh, and, and so it's just a, it's kind of a framing device. I don't know what that means other than framing devices are nice ways to envelope your movie. Um, but yeah, I think going back to kind of the, the performance as essence type thing, um, it, it's kind of interesting because at this time, I mean, you know, Pat, I think you know this history pretty well. It's like the idea of performing an essence was was not um, not on the rise, so to speak. Uh, you know, you kind of uh, a lived character was something that was taught to people and and taught to actors uh, at, at this time and and for a few decades before. 
And so the, the performance style, as I think even maybe old in terms of, of kind of stagecraft for this time, um, although it seems to be pretty fresh in, in terms of movies, that you'd still be using this kind of older, maybe mid 19th century style for silent pictures while on stage you were using a kind of more sophisticated style. But I, I don't know if that is necessarily a consequence of everything old seems more fake <laughs> than, than it does today. Um, and you know, I was wondering what, what people thought about that. Is this, uh, is this just sort of archetypes that it doesn't matter who you are, just step into the archetype? Or do we see, not just with Gish, but with, with the other performers, um, you know, the kind of lived character that, that are constantly complemented today? All the characters in this movie seemed more like caricatures than lived in people, at least to me. But like you say, Tom, I don't know if it's because it feels old timey, so I'm expecting that in some ways. To your point, it's the style, you know, it, it, I think to your point, it's sort of like theater at this time is certainly going more and more towards, you know, what would be called like method acting at a later point. I don't actually know how much of the, I don't know how much of that has actually kind of permeated into the West though yet. Because a lot of that doesn't come until later when you start having sort of, I think it's like, you know, the Michael Chekhovs and they start spreading, you know, sort of Stanislavski and techniques to the West in the 40s more. So, I mean, you, you can even, but to your point, yeah, there, there certainly are these, these aren't really like battling burrows, like other than the fact that he is like angry and drunk and violent, you, you don't really know anything about the guy and he never does anything other than those things. Like there's that, that guy goes through nothing. Like nothing happens to that guy from the beginning to the end. He's a prop device. Like he doesn't actually move anything. And same thing with a lot of the characters, like evil eye doesn't do anything. He's just there to, you know, make things messy and spread rumors and, and sort of be like, you know, he, he doesn't do anything either. So a lot of these characters that nothing really happens to them um, with the exception really of, of Lucy and um, Cheng Huan. But even then, I mean, it's sort of like Cheng Huan's character's name is I think in the credits, he doesn't even have his name. You only know it because it's on the store. His name is just like the yellow man. It's like the yellow man, evil eye battling burrows. Like they, they do have this sort of um, every man quality to them where each person's just kind of stuffed into the thing to move the plot along. Um, and, and that's partially also probably melodrama. It's probably just a, a product of the fact that this is, this, is, this is not, this is a melodrama. Like it's meant to be big and bold and make you, make you cry. Like it's sort of the point of it. So yeah, it's, 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 it's almost old timey for old timey. Like it, it even, it feels old even for an old film. And, and I think to your point, when you were saying like, an, you know, the sort of impressionistic style, I think that's actually probably the best word for it. Cause it does, it has this very much like, like if you looked at an impressionist painting, there's no specific pieces that are usually meant to stand out. You're meant to look at the thing as a whole. And maybe that's why it's done the way it is because it's not, it's not really meant for, for any specific parts of it to sort of stand out or any specific characters. It's more meant to, to be seen as a, as a holistic, perhaps. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I, I think the, the idea, especially of essence, is that there is no, there's no clear border. Um, and so it all sort of bleeds together. And I think you're right. There's no part that stands out, right? It's it's part of this. It's part of this kind of impression of of reality as opposed to reality itself. Um, but yeah, well said. All right, Nick. Now the remaining categories are. Uh, I had a quick question uh, before 
we go into the next two questions. I have no idea who James Ag or Richard Schickel are. How are they involved? That's why I picked Lily and Gish because I didn't know who they were either. So that's why. I picked yeah, Gish. yeah, because because <laughs> no, because no, I thought they were actors in the movie, and I like was looking. I'm like, I don't see these names anywhere. No, they're digestive artists. <laughs> <laughs> Dietetic. Dietetic artist. No, 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 it was dietetic. Digestive artist. It's, it's disgusting. Johnny, Johnny Chestnut, he's a digestive artist. <laughs> oh. right. Now, the remaining categories are um, quotes and paraphrases from James Ag, a, uh, a film critic and film writer. He actually wrote the first draft of Night of the Hunter from our previous episode. Uh, or quotes and paraphrases from Richard Shekel, who is a film historian. What would you like? Let's get a little history in our lives. Let's go with uh, Richard Shekel. It's time for question five. Richard Shekel said that this film has a sort of gritty realism that inspired Paps, Stiller, Von Sternberg, and reemerged in the U.S. as the sound error as film noir. Is he right? or wrong, and why, using an example from the film. Fact question. Yeah, I'll jump on the fact boat because it went pretty well last time. Yeah, so I automatically get the point. I'm sticking with what I got done. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, that was bad strategy. <laughs> I'm sticking, I'll stick in, I'll stick in. Locked in, locked in, locked in, locked in. Not stick, not okay. stuck in, locked <laughs> If you get this wrong, Pat. <laughs> so for KJ and Nick, here's the fact question. What are the first two pieces of advice Lillian Gish's character, Lucy, is given? Will there be partial credit? No. Oh, if I get one, I don't get one? Okay. I'll give you partial credit. All right. <laughs> I am half locked in. I'll be locked in. The other half is now locked in. Okay, so let's start with the fact questions first. Um, and I'll ask Nick first. What are Lucy's, uh, what is the advice Lucy gets? One of the advice that she gets is not to get married. She's with some lady who's got a bunch of kids and the husband's just kind of sitting there and she's taking care of everything and says, do not get married. The other advice that she gets is don't do opium all right you get half credit there nobody ever tells you not to do opium all right kj what do you have i i couldn't remember but i'd like to expand on nick's second answer there and and yeah this movie might have been kind of a a, a psa for you know don't do drugs that's in the end what got everybody okay so that's that's no points for you buddy <laughs> Uh, can, the I, two advice can, she... I, can I take a shot at the second one? Yes, please. She's, she's mm -hmm. told not to become a prostitute. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm, yes, I remember. Yes, that. Yep. yes mm -hmm. it was she's after the marriage. Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah. so she's got no outs. <laughs> <She's>... Yeah. <laughs> you can't become, you can't get married and you can't become a prostitute. It's pure trap. All right. And Pat, what is your, <laughs> what is your winning answer going okay. to be? So, I mean, partially, and I'm sure you guys did this, which I, I have to say, I'm also kind of a, like, you did Night of the Hunter. Like, that is my favorite movie. Like, I'm I'm very disappointed I was not here for that one. Um, but <laughs> um, I'm sure as part of that, I mean, you, you come up with probably a 
you have to come up with a definition of what noir is in order to really answer is this an, is this an original is this is this a proto noir that in and of itself is a really really difficult thing to do you know there's even debates i mean is is noir a genre is it a style is it like what what is it um my personal take is noir is a style um you know it's not a genre of film because a lot of people would say well no noirs are detective films or whatever they have to have specific content that to me is the genre not a style so if you're going to go and say okay noir is a style you know and typically then it has to involve you know typically it involves very specific types of 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 sort of lighting and imagery and sort of things like that to my mind i don't i don't think this fits that um, it, it does have that gritty realism quality. And even, um, it, it, you know, the fact that this guy says, like he actually mentions Pabst, which to me is funny because like Pabst actually is now, the, the Pabst Brewery is the one that actually makes McSorley's beer now. Um, so I think that's actually particularly- Full circle. Yeah, full circle. <laughs> actually, because it is, they PBR actually, Pabst makes McSorley's beer now. Um, that's where it's brewed. So it, it, it does have that sort of gritty realism to it, but that's just, that's realism. That's not noir to my mind. Like noir, noir is not gritty realism. That's just realism. So to my mind, noir has to have a specific sort of t like tonal quality and sort of lighting characteristics and sort of a, a, which you'd see in, in a traditional noir. I don't think this fits that to my mind. I don't think that's accurate. I think he's, I think he's wrong. Um, now there are certainly elements that have Okay, you know, as you were saying, like, it does have this sort of foggy feel, and it does have a claustrophobic feel, and it does sort of have some characteristics of it, but I don't, I would not qualify this film as noir. I don't think that critic is correct, in my opinion. Yes, I 100% agree. The reason I picked this quote was I found it bizarre um, <laughs> that you would qualify this as noir. I What is interesting about kind of melodrama, you know, looking at the back at the history of melodrama was that it, it's sort of considered the first realism in, in the melodramatic plays of the 19th century. Because you're dealing with sort of lower class people who are not just kind of comic buffoons, right? It's not, it's not like the comedy play. It's actually a, a tragedy about people struggling against actual conditions in the world, even though it's sensationalized. Um, but the idea of then saying it's realism gritty realism and noir, all of that's the same thing. And this movie is all of that. I, I found incredibly strange. Uh, we had also done uh, Caligari, the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari oh, yeah. earlier. Oh uh, yeah, which is kind of, you know, very expressionistic. Um, and that to me is, you know, much, much closer to noir than, than this movie. Yeah, I mean, to yeah. my mind, like noir is like you know is Nosferatu or M or something mm -hmm. like that. Although M M is in the silent movie, but um, you know, is is something like that. Like that's that's a that's noir to my mind. Yeah. Like the, the or at least as you said, like proto noir. Mm -hmm. But it's just like this doesn't seem that at all. Yeah. For, for our listening audience, M is actually on our calendar in uh, this oh. year, so that mm -hmm. is something that will be coming up and we will be discussing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I did. I did find that strange. But I'm I'm interested in how this style, how the kind of an impressionistic. It seems like we've landed on that as a term for the style of this movie. Uh, how that that kind of style fits in with maybe realism, and you know, does this movie contribute at all to realism, or is it, um, or is it so kind of locked into that style that it doesn't? it doesn't really get at the the kind of realism we might recognize. 
So, so Tom, what what movie would you say does show noir? I I think um, Cabinet has elements of it. Uh, I think, well, I I mean, you know, Pat, but you're interested in kind of doing a noir too, right? So, like a, a Maltese Falcon, right, would be your yeah, I mean that, that is mm. that is yeah. If you're gonna pick a noir film like that is, mm-hmm. that's the one you're gonna start with. I mean that's yeah. usually considered the first one. Mm-hmm. That's the one you're gonna start with if you're gonna if you're gonna have a noir film. Yes. Yeah, so it's like shadowy. Um, it, it's a little unrealistic in terms of kind of the the maybe the um, lighting and the sets, not necessarily um, bonkers or expressionistic, but it's not it's not exactly like perfect realism right it, it's kind of a shadowy the tone is a little darker um you, you typically it's more urban which i guess would also this film would fall into that um but uh yeah just think of like your classic fedora wearing detective film so then would you say broken blossoms is what you would have expected to see if you were in london in 1919 walking down the street is that what you guys mean by gritty realism i think it's what this film critic means by that and I think it's it's coming out of a tradition where even the representation of kind of the lower class was, you know, in in the maybe the earlier part of the 19th century, that was kind of new and um, and therefore considered sort of a, a reflection of reality. Right? I mean, if you go back to and here's the giant history lesson. If you go back to like the early part of the 18th century, you, you start getting this thing called like the bourgeois tragedy. It's something like the London Merchant, which I know our, our former alma mater, Holy Cross, did, I think in 2013 or something like that. But the London Merchant, yeah, yeah that's uh, 1731 that originally came out. And it was kind of like a sensationalized, super melodramatic um, play about merchants, hence the title, um, who gets, and, and one merchant gets involved with a prostitute who destroys his life and gets him to kill someone and, you know, just wrecks havoc. And the kind of the idea is, this is, this is reality, you know, it's, it's, the real world is made of these kind of merchants and these apprentices and these prostitutes. And you better be, if you want to be a good merchant and a good person, a kind of walk the line, right? Observe reality, reality is gritty. And if you want to kind of get through it, you have to kind of, you know, observe abstinence and, and good morals and, and whatever. And the play actually made a ton of money because it was like the play that apprentices were allowed to see. So once a year, all the apprentices would go to this play and watch it and be like, listen here, don't kill your employer for a prostitute. That's not good. Uh, you know. um, and that kind of became one of the, the sources of um, melodrama. But it was considered like realism. Like this was you know, not about kind of uh, the upper classes running around and frolicking anymore. It was, it was sort of, um, it was how they thought of the kind of the real world. And so what ends up kind of happening, it seems to happen all the time is like, what is considered gritty realism is just sort of, um, you know, thrown off to the next generation. And I think like one of the best examples of this is, like Sarah Bernhard was considered by like the year 1900 to be kind of a, a over the top actress. But if you ever read um, like George, George Bernard Shaw used to write theater reviews about her and she was mostly complimented by being 
uh, intensely real. Like that was her idea. And so it seems like realism is a sort of standard of good. <laughs> like it's just, you know, going back to like the, the mid 18th century, realism just meant good. And then the next generation was like, that isn't good. This is good. Um, and it, that, that just seems to be how realism functions in, in terms of performances. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to me, this movie, it's like, it's it's realistic in the sense that like, probably if you compare it to, you know, to, you know, I think your Shakespeare example probably isn't necessarily off. Like if you go and compare it to like Macbeth or, you know, Lear or sort of these like, you know, majestic tragedies. Yeah, it's it's not that. It's meant to be sort of like a you know, as we said, sort of like a simple piece about simple people, it, you know, in many ways, it sort of gets to that, like, you know, Arthur Miller would go and claim that he wrote that he took the tragedy and made it about the common man, you know, and that he's kind of bringing it back down and trying to make it, you know, and he probably wouldn't have said death of the salesman is realistic per se, but it is meant to be a sort of more representative of life. Does this film meet that quality? I mean, even they even say at the beginning that it's like, you might argue that people like this don't exist. And it's sort of like, yeah, because probably they, they, they do, but they don't. It, like, no one is this sort of one-dimensional. And so it is, it is representative of a reality, but it's not realistic by any stretch. Yeah, I, I would say I don't think you get Arthur Miller and that kind of low mimetic tragedy without things like this. Right, I think that the kind of the melodrama or sensationalist theater uh, leads eventually allows you to put kind of low characters on stage or, or in front of the camera later on, and that eventually gets you to to Miller and people who follow him. All right, shall we go into the last question? Let's do it. It's time for question six. So this is James Agee, a film critic, film writer. Um, and this is him on Griffiths. And uh, this is an extended quote, and so I'll give it to you. Griffiths, quote, had no remarkable power of intellect or delicateness of soul, no subtlety, little restraint, little, if any, taste, whether to help his work or harm it. Lord knows no cleverness, no fundamental capacity. Once he had achieved his first astonishing development for change or growth, his sense of comedy was pathetically crude and numb. He had an exorbitant appetite for violence, for cruelty, for the Siamese twin of cruelty, a kind of obsessive tenderness, which at its worst was all but nauseating. However, Griffith was a great primitive poet, a man capable, as only great and primitive artists can be, of intuitively perceiving and perfecting the tremendous magical images that underlie the memory and imagination of entire peoples. Interpret Agee's quote using broken blossoms and examples from that film. Locked in? Sure, locked in. Locked in. All right. And excuse me. All right. Um, we'll have KJ start it off. I think we've been talking a lot about how this movie loosely represents uh, peoples and caricatures and we talked about how battling Burroughs doesn't have anything in his house that shows that he's a real person and he just represents, this is what that archetype is supposed to be. So yeah, I guess I agree with the quote and I interpret it to be uh, factual. And I, I think he's just commenting on stuff we've commented throughout this episode. I think his first part is he's probably being a little bit harsh, um, but he's, 
he's accurate in the sense that, I, I mean, in some ways, the guy is working with a relatively simple tool set. So, and, and my understanding is, you know, he's, he's unique in the sense that he's, he's sort of building a film as its own medium in the sense that he's not just like trying to just take a play and put it on a stage and then just film the play. Like he's trying to do something that is not done, that you can't do with live theater and he's not just trying to film it and make that live theater. Like he is trying to build something that's unique. And so that does often limit his tool set. So in that sense, he is sort of a primitive poet. You know, he's sort of what you might expect from somebody who doesn't have a lot of um, forms or options at his disposal to kind of use. So yes, that, that part is sort of accurate. And, and I think he, he does sort of, if you're going to look at this film in particular, like, yes, he's, he does sort of have this, there is, I, I like the, the Siamese twin of just butchery and just sort of like just schlocky sentimentalism. Like, yeah, that is, that is more or less what this film is. Um, but I think it's, it's probably, he's being a bit hyper, you know, hyperbolic in this, in the interests of, um, you know, getting his point across. So yeah, that, that part is accurate. Like this film, this film has, it's just, that's all, that's, it's all over this film. It's just like, that is, it's hard to even cite individual examples. It is what this film is. Like everything is about that. It's about the extreme contrasts between the violence and sort of this, this sort of um, sentimentalism. But um, that being said, it's still, it's still, a, and, I, and I think that is the point in his second part is it's still effective because it's effective because this, this guy is sort of building up a, a new set of forms and ideas and sort of, of methods of, of, of creating a film like this. Um, so yes, it's, it's accurate. It's certainly a bit extreme, but I, I think it is accurate given the, given the way the film works and, and the way the film's meant to work. I don't think it's meant to work differently. Um, it, it does exactly what it was meant to do with what he had at his, at his disposal. I think he was stating that this movie was far from subtle and based on his standards, uh, over the top in its portrayals, but it was an interesting story about the corruption of society and the effect of the, on the innocents. And the reason I bring this up is the two of the three main characters, uh, Chin Wan and Lucy, are introduced as good characters. And throughout this film, uh, one of the good characters, Chen Wan, it seems has developed some sort of addiction <laughs> and tries to uh, better, you know, his initial attempts of bettering the Anglo-Saxons have seemed to kind of gone to the wayside. And in the end, he ends up uh, murdering someone. Um, and then Lucy, with all her good intentions of trying to be a good, pure person, the white blossom, ends up being murdered. So that is what I think this person was saying within his quotes. All right. Thank you very much. I, let's just give points to everyone. <laughs> We're all good friends. Everyone wins. Um, you get a point. And you get, you a, get point. a point. And you get a point. Yeah. <laughs> or two points. Uh, yeah, two points, at, mm -hmm. which I, I believe, yeah, Pat then wins. I think you got points for every question. <laughs> so yeah. Yay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do like your point, Pat. This the kind of like the the limited tool tool chest, uh, or the you know the limited tools in the tool chest, is is I think a good metaphor. You introduced that a little earlier in the podcast. I also I did like the term that that quote jumped out at me uh, for this idea of the primitive poet. Uh, I, I you know th this sort of um, writing and kind of crudity 
because everything here is kind of on the surface. It's a very rich and textured surface, but there's like no depth to, to any of this. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's like the, the entire thing is, is, you know, on an X, Y axis, there's no Z in, in this picture. Um, I was kind of interested in what the effect of, um, what the effect of kind of reducing subtlety or eliminating subtlety from the the film actually is like how does that kind of affect us today what are your thoughts tom i kind of what happened with a, a lot of this movie is i sort of turn turn my brain off a, a lot um you know the the and sort of enjoy the the atmosphere um i, I i'm sort of engaged uh emotionally in terms of watching Lillian Gish's Lucy, that type of thing. It seems to be that the, the lack of complication allows uh, a lot more attention to, to go to the performers, especially, especially to Gish. Um, and I think that may be part of why it's such a, it's such a, it's so remarked on her performances is, is remarked on so often is the fact that, you are you are given um you're given everything about her up front and with what she's doing uh it's it's kind of a pure vulnerability um and the the sort of archetypal way that people perform things does allow for um i don't want to say vulnerability but it does allow you to either have kind of no access to the the actor underneath because he's just or she's just being this person um or it sort of frees them to be uh to be kind of more emotionally accessible and so that was kind of my experience was that it was uh, much more of a, a a sensuous experience than you know let's say watching night of the hunter which i think was very a very complex and kind of very dense film to your point, it is. It's an it's an interesting point. You kind of do need to shut your higher brain functions off a little bit because it is like it. It's partially because of just the you know as, as we've we've said at the very beginning of the film, like it does. It's sort of it has it, it. It's problematic in some of the way that it approaches you know as we said just sort of its race issues and things like that. And you you kind of have to just you have to just accept that that's what it is. Like it's just like that's just not going to go away, and so you kind of have to just shut it off in many ways. And and I think it's true. It's just sort of a. It's not a film that you're gonna you're gonna spend a lot of time trying to find hidden meaning in, which is, you know, Night of the Hunter has a lot of that. You can certainly watch that film and find symbols and things like that. Like this thing doesn't really have that. It just doesn't exist. Everything's on the is, is right up front. So it is it's it's immersive and it's not. It's it's sort of emotionally immersive, but it's not completely immersive. Like if you just kind of give yourself up to it and watch it and just appreciate the performances and appreciate everything going on, it, it it's effective. But if you try to really dive into what its message in many ways is and what's going on with it, it, it kind of just falls apart. <laughs> but it's it doesn't mean it's not it doesn't mean it's not good. It just means that like it, it yeah, I think it's an interesting point that like it's about the performances. It's about what comes out of it. it it's not necessarily about it, its message or its, its sort of intellectual quality. That's not it, this is a this is much more a, a true piece of just art. It's meant to be looked at and, and seen how beautiful it is and how pretty it is. It's it's not meant for you to sit there and, and try to change the world from it. I mean, I think it was meant to at the time. I just don't think it does that anymore. Yeah, because his his intentions tend to be 
you know, especially from like in his movies Intolerance, he being Delia Griffith, his movies Intolerance and later were sort of, you know, message movies. Like, here's our moral. We're going to give it to you up front. Um, but I can't imagine anybody actually went to the movie <laughs> to, to digest the moral. But yeah, I, I think that, yeah, once you, once you're given the moral you're supposed to imbibe, once you're given the message, you can sort of ironically suspend the message and get more into the performances. And in some ways, it's actually taking a step back as well. It, it's also like, to your point about, you know, a lot of these characters are meant to be archetypes and this kind of stuff. It, it, and especially given that there is sort of this very sort of, it, it, I mean, again, it's, it's obviously melodrama. It's not the same thing, but it is kind of, it has a, to, to borrow one of our favorite terms I've used before, the Brechtian, you know, that, it, that these characters aren't, they're not meant to be real people per se. They're meant to be classes and groups and things like that. They're, they're meant to represent this kind of thing. And, and it is, I think, to try to, it, it, the point is to try to get you to imbibe this message. But I, I just think given the content, it just doesn't work. It's, it's much more, it's emotionally manipulative, not intellectually manipulative. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. It's emotionally manipulative, not intellectually manipulative. Oh, that's, yeah. Well, Tom, this was a great group of questions. Pat, finishing the episode off with nine points. I came in at five, and KJ rounded it out with three. Patrick, congratulations for taking this one down. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Movie Rant in a moment. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-side. KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website, YouTube channel, or where you normally listen to Talking Pictures Trivia to find the B-side where we talk about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. Here's a quick sample. And we are trying something new on Talking Pictures Trivia. We are trying a game inspired by a possible mistranslation in the last movie we watched called Broken Blossoms. It has to do with counting beans and seeing who can count correctly for the math nerds out there it's mostly mod four that may make sense to very few of our listeners luckily there are only very few of you or co-hosts or co-hosts <laughs> either way so we have four players is the way this game works um and we're gonna name the players now i'm kj i'm tom nick i'm doug all right the gang's all here you guys may flip this record over by heading to talkingpicturestrivia.com our YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to hear more on the B-side. And we're back. It's time for Movie Rant. I want to throw, I just want to throw out one just because I know it's it's like, I think Tom Tom mentioned this before that it is it is the is probably the most talked about scene in the movie is the like we we kind of we touched on it but we didn't really get as much into it is the the closet scene where she's like trapped in the closet and doing like the spin around thing and that you know how how sort of supposedly emotionally effective it is what's what's people's take on that scene like does is it still effective now like is it or is it like what what is, what is the deal with that? Like, why is it so talked about? Why is that? If you're gonna, if people know a scene from Broken Blossoms, they know that scene, and not many people know much from it anyway. But if they do know anything, they know the closet scene. Like, that's the thing that everyone is the most famous thing 
in that movie? Like, what's people's take on that? Why? I have to say, when I first watched this movie, I knew there was a famous closet scene because I think we talked about it with our our professor uh, at that time. Um, and when I first watched the movie, I was waiting for the closet scene or the the part of the closet scene that's most famous is she's, she turns in a 360. So she turns in a circle. She's desperate to get out of the closet as her dad's breaking in. And, and so she turns in a, a 360 degree circle, um, which is what a circle is. Uh, and when I first watched the movie, I kind of missed it. <laughs> I, I was waiting for it and I, I just didn't see it. And I, you know, watching it again, I sort of had the same response. I didn't miss it this time, you know, because I'd seen the movie before. Um, but I, I couldn't quite understand why someone would lose their lunch watching that that scene live, right? Like, you know, somebody supposedly had actually thrown up because it was so emotional um, when they were watching uh, Griffith and, and Gish film that scene. And honestly, like, I love Lillian Gish in this. I, I do think it's worth kind of raving about her performance. I, I don't quite get the critical attention that the closet scene gets. Um, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? It was an effective scene showing that there was no way out. She was backed into a corner and she's looking for a way out of this. And she literally goes all the way around to right where she started, which was effective. But I also agree. I don't know why it was such a critically acclaimed element. If anything, the item I brought up earlier where she used her two fingers to make a smile actually resonated more with me as a very unique uh, style from this movie or, or, or a presentation of how she acted or her role. So that one actually jumped out me more than that specific scene. Yeah, I also, I, I didn't realize that was the famous scene that I should have been watching for. Um, the, the scenes that I kind of liked with her were her and Chung Huang together. I thought some of those were, were, were the more emotional, uh, gripping scenes. Yeah, I, I, I asked the question because I was curious, because it is one of those things where I know it's supposed to be really famous, and I think I've had the same reaction, which is like, I just don't really get it. Like, it's not, it's not like, you know, people seem to act like it's like, you know, the end of like seven and like what's in the box type thing. Like, it's meant to be this like shocking thing. And I'm like, I just, I just don't get it. <laughs> I just don't. It's, yeah, it, I guess it, it's, it is a visual symbol, I guess, right? Because there, there is no way out type thing, which, yeah. is, which is reiterated through the whole movie. Right? There's, just, there's no way out for these people. Like it's considered, I, like it's, it is considered one of the great moments in the history of film performance. Um, and I, I, I really don't notice. And, and I agree with you, KJ, that the, the kind of the scenes on the, the second floor of the store are really kind of sweet and and nice. I think um, the close-ups don't work for me there in that scene when they close up on on the two of them. Um, it, it looks a little lechy, honestly, at, at that point. But uh, uh, but I, I do think that that is kind of the the best of Gish is is when she's you know kind of responding to him, um, and it's also when the movie's kind of most itself, right? It's like these two people are, you know, the, the most ethereal and the most kind of beautiful that they can be in the in their essence. To um, to to use one of the the terms we referenced earlier. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Nick. Did you have a a visceral 
No, you you said Nick, you didn't have the kind of visceral response to the closet. It was no, a, I, I thought it. I thought it was well done. It just if I was going to say something that I thought was unique that resonated, it was that other thing where she would force a smile. Like that's the, that's the. I, I again, I think she does it a few times, but that's what sticks in my mind. Yeah, I, I agree. That's kind of what sticks in, in in my mind too, in terms of a a particular thing or whatnot. Um, um, I wanted to mention one thing I noticed. The inner title cards sometimes had different backgrounds. And I had never seen that in a silence film before. Um, there was like a Sakura background sometimes. Um, often when Cheng Huang was quote unquote speaking, there, when, there was sometimes like words of wisdoms and they had rays of sunlight behind them. And when it was the, the boxer, when it was battling Burroughs, it was always that traditional black and I think it had DG at the bottom for uh, for the director, for D.W. Griffith. Yeah, I thought they all had DG, didn't they? Oh, even the, the fancier slides? Yeah, they may have. Yeah, sure. I think that typically you'd either get the pro like the production company or the director's initials at the bottom of, of intertitles. Yeah, I, I, yeah, there's kind of a, like the tinting to things, be it the intertitles or the, you know, the, the actual different scenes was incredibly effective. Um, I think the, the, the way that you know, the different backgrounds or the different kind of coloring of the intertitles, I didn't recognize that. I didn't, I didn't catch that. I didn't pick up on that. Um, yeah, I was just, I, the only one I noticed was, you're right, I noticed the, the sunlight one um, that tended to come on. And yeah, I think that was usually the like, um, the moments of inspiration ones, like the, you know, he, 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 but he resists and keeps his love pure, you know, and then they'd have like the sunlight ones coming down. Um, I, I didn't actually notice any of the other ones, but it, it is, I did notice that at least, at least on that card. And I think I remember it, it pops in a couple other times that, yeah, the, the cards do change. And yeah, I don't, like, that's another thing. I just have no idea. having not seen that many silent films that I, didn't, I don't know if other films do that or not. Yeah. I don't remember with other Griffith films. I watched a few of them for, for this show um but it's interesting do you see them like evolve or something kj no it, it, they they're sporadic kind of throughout mm -hmm. um but i was just wondering if if that's an opportunity to be creative I'm, I'm just surprised we that more movies didn't do it or is there something a, a comedy could have even done with the title cards or maybe they have you know i'm not too familiar with silent films either um but i just thought it was interesting to see different backgrounds compared to that that classic black with the white text in that particular font that we're used to. Yeah, I, I mean, they do different functions. I know in, in silent films, intertitles became seen as crutches, that if you weren't a particularly good storyteller, you needed more intertitles rather than fewer. I know Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin had a contest to see who could make a movie with the, a full-length movie with the fewest intertitles. I, I think Chaplin won. I think he only had like 14 in a two-hour movie or something like that. The, the, I mean, I don't know if Griffith was particularly concerned. Wasn't there with an that. Academy Award at one point, though, for intertitles? Was there, there like really? An Academy Award for intertitles at one point? I think there was for like a very brief time. They had an Academy. I think they did. I'm almost like, like wow, reasonably sure. That, I think <laughs> there was so this a category. Movie was just Oscar bait is what this was. <laughs> <laughs> the Oscars didn't exist. 1919, they did. I think that was like the first year. No, 1926, I think. Oh, was it 26? Because I, I think Richard Barthelmey helped establish the motion picture association uh, yes there was uh first yeah, academy award <laughs> presented 1929 best writing title cards that's amazing it went to joseph farnham 
So they did. So so there was some. No, they did recognize at yeah. some point later on that mm-hmm. there was some art to them. Yeah. Oh, that that's really cool. Uh, it's got to be the easiest category to win these days, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It went for the films. Oh, it went for a few films that he made that year: Fair Coed, Laugh Clown, and Telling the World. Um, it, the, the award was never given again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wonder, they were like, this is stupid. <laughs> well, it was 1929. They had like talkies. They were like, yeah. no one wants to make this crap anymore. <laughs> it was that one guy telling him, hey, it wouldn't be great if we had an award for intertitles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, it's, yeah, it's like a, it's a hereditary title now is the guy who's in charge of selecting the intertitle award. It's his son and grandson. Um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but it, I mean, in this movie, the intertitles are used in different ways. There's like actual what people are saying. There's also, you know, like the the message from the director, um, you know, moments of inspiration or, you know, kind of like fo- uh, a fortune cookie moments um, pop up. But yeah, there is a there is a decent amount of variety. I will have to say the, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari intertitles were a little more interesting. Um, yeah, they they would have won up against this one for uh, for best in a yeah. title card. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, what? Another, just another technical thing. The the tinting in this movie, you know, I, I really love that. And I, I, you know, watching silent movies again. We watched another silent movie. We watched that was uh, Doctor Caligari, as I mentioned before, which is almost no tinting to it, right? I think it's it's just sepia colored. Um, and it really has a, a great effect, uh, you know. And I think it was it involved employing like a, an entire staff of, of young women to individually paint the different um, the different film stills. Cells. Yeah, yeah, I know it's probably grueling work, but it was it was uh, I don't know. It had a, a kind of a great effect that I sort of miss today watching movies. Um, that, that kind of the red, the really. Uh, kind of purplish red in the the upstairs of his store, um, you know, kind of made that tone. The kind of bluishness when you looked out to see at the the uh, at the cityscape, um, yeah, really kind of had it. It was very effective. Anyway, I don't know what do people think of that. Well, before we get too into that, this movie is actually in the public domain. So I, I watched this on Amazon Prime. So it had those different tints and the different colors. But if you got a another version on Internet Archives or or anywhere from the public domain, it may or may not have had that tinting. In other words, that that tinting, um, you know, in most theaters back then, they may or may not have had the tinted version that was played. So I, I think it's kind of a a privilege that we get to see the tinted version. Is that true? Was, I was is going the, to say I'm not. I'm not 100 certain my version was tinted. Yeah, really? I was going to say yeah. I don't think mine was. Oh, wow. that's why I was like, I don't. I don't think I had that. <laughs> I oh, like, that's I amazing. Remember it. Yeah, that's amazing. I did not. That that's interesting. That different people had kind of different experiences of this. Oh wow. Yeah, I guess because you could only color so many of them, right? Yeah, if you're doing it by hand, that's a pretty labor intensive. Yeah. Yeah, as opposed to a mm-hmm. click on iMovie or, or something like that. <laughs> oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so I guess a lot of people saw the kind of the the uh, the, the B side <laughs> of this movie. Oh, okay. It's, it's sort of like it's like going to see the um, 
the the not the HDMI. What do you call the the really oh. fancy ones where they charge you like twenty five dollars for the oh, same IMAX? Is IMAX, that... yeah, this yeah. is the IMAX equivalent. <laughs> like you had the IMAX film and you had it on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like Avatar. I saw Avatar yeah. in two D and. You didn't see Broken Blossoms tinted? Oh. <laughs> terrible. The closet scene makes so much sense with a tint. <laughs> but that's yeah. what I'm wondering. Like, maybe I missed something. Maybe that's why. <laughs> uh, but to answer your question, Tom, I was actually fairly distracted by the tinting. Oh, really? Because I was trying to figure out why they were doing it. Um, I didn't know if it was they just... I know some like older mm-hmm. movies, they, they kind of played with the colors, too in a much less effective way they just it, it felt a little bit like a mistake like they just picked up the wrong camera film and it had mm-hmm. water damage or something um so i i wasn't sure why they were tinting the different scenes no okay i, I think it's kind of to, to set the atmosphere to set the tone i mean again i think it's going back to we talked about this a lot the, the kind of impressionistic feel of the movie which i guess is maybe the best term for the style of it right is this sort of you know like impressionism um and i think it just kind of gives you the impression or feel of the error right like this this room is this kind of purplish red uh you know that's kind of how this room feels you know it's 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 the um it's the sense of a place reduced to color right so like the the lakeside is kind of bluish and so forth so another film that used this to great effect, although I haven't seen it in a while, was Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy. So to pull everything together, is Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy a noir, and was it heavily influenced by Broken Blossoms, the tinted version? <laughs> yeah, I think the answer is yes. This, I think, I think Dick Tracy is in fact considered a remake of Broken Blossoms in some circles. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, which is Patrick... Uh, thanks again for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, I'd also like to thank our articulate editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's recommendation from 2004, Shaun of the Dead. Definitely a different subject matter than today's episode. It should be a fun one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.